Welcome to Food and Loathing, your weekly glimpse into the Las Vegas restaurant and bar scene and all of the delicious news and gossip that surrounds it. I'm Al Mancini, joined by Jason Harris and producer Rich Johnson. Coming up, Cucina Italiana. That's Italian food in a horrible accent, everybody. But who doesn't love it? There are so many kinds of Italian places here in Las Vegas. We get to have a quick chat today with superstar chef Bobby Flay about his new Italian joint in Caesars Palace, Amalfi. Then we're off to Piero's, one of the most famous Italian restaurants in the country. You know, every time you do your Italian accent, I think of Mario Brothers. I mean, is that where you get that one? <laughs> it's me, Jason. Oh, and I think you do pull that one um, with the chefs that join us, if- who will be Gina Marinelli, who you might say is leading the charge for cutting-edge Italian cuisine in the Burbs, and Chef Chris Conlon. After cooking for the beautiful people at Hakkasan, he's now reinventing old-school Italian at Piero's. His accent reminds me of the commercial that Alco Seltzer had to pull in the late 60s of the guy, Mamma Mia, that's a spicy meat. I do remember that one, yeah. I do uh, say, no, that's racist as hell. Well, Well, this is where I get to pull out my, you know, Mancini last name, right? And I can give you the special dispensation for your Mario Brothers accent. Yeah, Mario Brothers, the 60s, (laughs) and a spicy meatball. We're really hitting that podcast audience with really, really current references here, fellas. (laughs) Also, Al, one of our favorite Thai restaurants in Las Vegas has got a new location coming to Hendo. You have news on that. And Rich shares his new meat discovery. See what happens if you look in the mirror long enough, Rich? (laughs) You find your meat. (laughs) And it may be the most opulent new restaurant of 2021. I got a sneak preview of Delilah at Wynn Las Vegas. I'll tell you all about the room, the food, and how I almost missed it all because I'm an idiot. And I did miss it because I wasn't invited. I may not be invited back based on my (laughs) idiocy. First, let's share what we've done and where we've gone over the past week. Jason, you've been at a spot that I was actually hearing about at Delilah's. I mean, you could be hearing about it at Delilah's, on the streets. Uh, You pass by it. The parking lot is full. I went to Dave's Hot Chicken and this place had a line wrapped around the entire lot up uh, there on Sahara and Fort Apache. It's like Chick-fil-A without all the LGBTQ hatred, which I appreciate. Um, <laughs> it's really good. I got to say, for hot chicken, uh, our friend Kevin Fiddler first turned me, turned me on to this, and it's really good. Uh, the combos, I got like a number two combo. They say it's a slider, but it's a giant chicken sandwich, and then you get a tender, which is also giant on a piece of bread. You get some fries with it, some sauces. It's good hot chicken, which your stomach, we know, couldn't handle. I mean, uh, look, I'm a pussy. We've said this a million times. I mean, you know, I like to I'm a super taster. My palate is too sensitive for too much spice. <laughs> so um, when I get when I get too much spice on something, it really just blows out my, my taste buds. I can't taste anything but the heat. Well, as as much as I don't want to defend you, I will defend you on this. Sometimes you get hot chicken and it's just like you said, overwhelming, like, oh, so much paprika, or, you know, it's just there to burn you. This was hot chicken, it was flavorful, and it was fried correctly. You had that great crunch on the outside, and it was still tender in the middle. Is it worth waiting on a giant line to get it? Not for me. I didn't wait on the line, not because I pulled the, you know, whoopsie-doopsie, but I went inside, and there was no line inside, and so I got my order. I was in and out very quickly. Okay. Also new, Rich, you um, visited a new spot. Yeah, a couple of months I've been watching the progress of a new meat market in Summerlin, and now Featherblade is open. It is a standalone English craft butcher shop owned and operated by a real, no kidding, uh, English craftsman. His name is Martin Crane, and uh, I, I just had to ask. What brought you here to do this outstanding-looking uh, butcher shop? 
<laughs> well, uh, I had a couple of shops in England. Uh, my wife is from D.C. originally, but her family moved to Las Vegas a few years back. And I was holidaying here and um, looking for a new challenge and thought that Vegas could do with what we do in London, you know, in the butchery scene there. It's quite a scene the last few years, the whole uh, let's use everything. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely been a huge resurgence in the last 10 years um, of this craft butchery where people are more conscious of or, or care more about where their meat comes from, how it's produced, the conditions that the animals are raised in. From that want, the, the butchers are stepping up, I guess, and shops are in, definitely in London and England are popping up again, be more prominent. And I see it here too, especially on the east and west coast. And I thought I would do the same in Vegas. So let's drop some names. Where are you sourcing this stuff? As local as we can. It's hard being in Vegas. We're in a bit, bit of a, an island here. The closest is the pork, which is from Las Vegas Livestock, up in uh, Apex. We also get our farm eggs from there. The lamb is, is grass-fed from Superior Farms in California. And the beef, so far, is from Marin County, Marin Sun Farms, and Santa Carata, which is mid-California. And that's the carrot-finished beef, which is quite unique. Beef, pork, a lot of sausages chickens what else the thing that's really kicking off with these english is the back bacon which is uh, not like the bacon that you get here which is predominantly we call it streaky which is the belly bacon we like to get creative we have porchettas lots of lamb like lamb noisettes um racks french things products like that because i was trained in london and you get a lot of french influence so you get a lot of the fancy cuts so what is the english way versus the american way of butchery Names, first of all. All our names, nearly all the names are different apart from beef, lamb, pork, and chicken. The cuts um, are slightly different. We don't have tri-tip, for example. Brisket tends to be bone-in, not bone-less. Little things like that that I'm, I want to please, you know, both both markets. And the sausages are different, too, because we have we put rusk in our sausage, which is the secret English ingredient. So I, uh, I had the back bacon for breakfast over the weekend, and it definitely was outstanding. I went back to get a couple of uh, ribeyes. I like them thick, my wife likes them thin, and Martin just cut them to order. So Featherblade is uh, Charleston and Durango. It sounds good. When I saw you walking in today, I was behind you, and I said, I'd recognize that back bacon anywhere. Yeah, there you go. You know, when, when you told me you discovered a new meat market, and it was called Featherblade, I don't know if I was just flashing back my days yeah. hanging out in um, Chelsea and New York City in <laughs> yeah, the 90s, yeah. but I was expecting that to go a totally different way. I was kind of excited about it. A little leather mixed in? Yeah, that's what I was hoping for. Also, speaking about places where you could shop for yourselves, um, Jason and I went over to the grand reopening of Artisanal Foods. This is a place that our friend Brett Odolenghi had run for a long time. It was where everybody went to go get um, gourmet foods to cook at home, and also a lot of the local chefs would go over there. He has reopened with a new location over there on Maryland Parkway at Tropicana in the old Best Buy spot. And Jason and I spoke to John Batista and, J- and Jordan, I should say, Dunwood, the new owners. Here's a bit of um, what they told us about what they have to offer. Japanese A5 Wagyu, uh, foie gras, and I want to say all of our caviar is top of the line. You want to, you know, uh, I, I really want to add one more. We just got in last night Dominican fried cheese, um, which is salami, Dominican salami from the Dominican Republic. It's really hard to get. They don't even want to bring it out here. The companies, you know, want you to buy large amounts, and there's just not a demand for it because there's not that many people. I'm, I brought it. I paid the high shipping, and we are bringing it first to market. Cool. So, um, you know, you've got a pool table in here. You've got a ball crawl in here. You have a little bit of a stage. What's the vibe? Dine in, grab and go. I mean, obviously, groceries are a big part of it. But beyond that, as far as prepackaged foods, is it to eat here? Is it to grab and go? How's that work? Um, if COVID taught us anything, is to really reinvent the wheel, if you will. Um, you can't just be one-dimensional. So we could never open up a grocery store and expect to survive in this new post-COVID world. 
Um, so what we're doing is, you know, we're across between the international market and Area 15. We're very interactive. We're very food related. Um, the caviar ball pit is cool. We contacted Guinness Book of Records. Um, if nobody else has done it before they came, we are in the Guinness Book of Records. Um, the mural, um, shout out to Pros. He's a local artist. He did a lot of stuff downtown um, in the Paris Hotel as well. Um, he depicted the people behind the food because I think that's so important that when you get the food, you don't even know where it comes from. You know, people are very self-conscious right now. What they're eating, what they're what they're putting into their bodies. So it, it's it's a very interactive place where you can uh, enjoy food as much as a chef do. And just to clarify, yes, there is a caviar ball crawl in there for the kids. A big giant tin of caviar filled with um filled with black balls. And also, just to clarify, I should say Brett Odalengi had sold the spot to um to Jonathan and Jordan. They are the new owners along with Jonathan's wife. And um, I'm super excited for them, man. It's a great place to shop. I think so, and it's a it's in a cool neighborhood that doesn't really have a specialty market. I do want them to put another caviar ball pit just filled with caviar, though. Yes, I do want to. That way we can get a even fishier smelling than usual. <laughs> Why not? But uh, I am excited because uh, we got a lot of unique products in there. And, you know, we know uh, Jonathan's been uh, doing a lot of stuff from his home country, Dominican Republic. And I think he's going to bring in some product from there. And you visited one more spot that's a must stop for people who are just cooking at home or, or putting out a spread at home. Yeah, we talked about Michael Stam last week, Cured in Way. I went, I'm working on this giant charcuterie article. And I got some really, really fun, partially horrifying for some people, information on Michael's excellent and long-running background with charcuterie. I grew up in a very small town in Germany. Yeah. Okay. The next town, which my my mom's cousin lived up there, and um, we would get together three families. We would raise a couple of pigs and we would raise a cow. Okay. We all paid into that, and uh, then we would go ahead and usually September do a slaughter fest, where all the families got together. We made our own bratwurst, our own blood sausage. We made or blutwurst, we made liver case, we made beer shinger, uh, I mean, we made gildwurst, I mean, all these typical German charcuteries. I love that Michael is really, talk about farm to table, sourcing his own animals in his background. Uh, that's how he learned how to make charcuterie. The horrifying part would be is if Slaughterfest was like an 80s, you know, kind of schlock B-movie yeah. or something. Like I'm, I'm glad we did the vegan show already because no <laughs> vegan will ever come on the show again after Slaughterfest happens. Slaughterfest reminds me of an old 80s metal festival I would have gone yeah. to. With you know, like in, Yeah, with Slaughter at, at Castle Donington or someplace. Anyway, up next, we are off to Piero's for a deep dive into all things Italian. This is Food and Loathing. Hey, I'm Josh Bell. I'm Jason Harris. Hey, Josh, we're friends in real life, but we're also co-hosts on this new podcast called Awesome Movie Year, where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies and do a deep dive looking at movies, including the best picture winner, the biggest movie at the box office, future cult classics, and more. Including the biggest flop. And this season, we're doing 1994. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. That could be Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. We're all over the web as well. Got Awesome Movie Year on all the socials and awesomemovieyear.com. So please like us, subscribe. And uh, if you do like us, give us a five-star rating because we love you.
Welcome back to Food and Loathing. I'm your host, Al Mancini, here in the famed and somewhat infamous Piero's restaurant in Las Vegas, um, one of this town's most classic Italian restaurants. And we're going to be chatting with the chef and actually another great Italian chef in just a moment. But while we're talking about Italian food, I think one of the big openings that happened, one of the big changes, I guess, that happened during COVID was over at Caesar's Palace, where Bobby Flay's famed um, Mesa Grill, the Southwestern restaurant, was converted into Amalfi or Amalfi, depending on how Americanized you are. Um, Jason and I were actually in there the weekend of the grand opening celebration. That was my second visit in. Um, I got to chat a little bit with um, Chef Bobby Flay about what he's doing at that restaurant. I figured we'll play that first and kind of lead into this conversation. So here's, here's a bit of my chat with Bobby. First of all, Chef, congratulations. I mean, things were kicking on your very first night, but I know you wanted to get everything dialed in before you had an official grand opening. Clearly, you're ready for that now. So how are you feeling now that you've had your official grand opening? Well, I mean, so far, so so good here at Amalfi. It's, uh, it's been a very exhilarating time. Um, it's almost like the timing has been almost too good, um, where, you know, we um, were able to designed the restaurant during quarantine and then about five months ago start building it slowly and then you know as soon as we started you know cooking all of a sudden you know uh vegas started opening up again so it's uh it's all sort of been nice in terms of timing and so far the reaction of the of, of the of the customers has been great people are really loving the restaurant they're they're they seem to really be liking the food which is a good thing for me and um, we're having a good time, and 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 the way I sort of uh, dreamt it up before it all went down is really coming to life, even better than I could imagine. So, could you explain the concept? Because the first thing people hear is Bobby Flay and Italian, and they go somewhere in their heads when they hear Italian cuisine. But the coastal style of Italian that you're doing here, I mean, could you explain what inspired it and what it is for those who may not know it? So, Malfi is is obviously. Um, you know, it's representation re- representational of the of the Malfi Coast in uh, in in the south of Italy, and it's and the Malfi Coast is right on the Tyrrhenian Sea, and it's a place that I go to a lot for vacation. And you know, because it's right on the sea, it's it's obviously very seafood focused. You know, fish and shellfish, you know, paired together with lots of handcrafted pastas, etc. And of course, you know, lots of lots of Itali- Italian influence and. Um, you know, I, I, I really uh, take a lot of inspiration from the authenticity of that, of that region. I know a lot of chefs there. Some of them are really my good friends. So I've, I've been able to really um, to, to lean on them for, you know, knowledge and inspiration over the years. And this is just a collection of things that I've, you know, you know come to love over the last two decades just as a consumer and somebody who likes to spend time there. Um, and, uh, but, of course, I have to put my own twist on it here and there. People know me, you know, for serving, you know, very big flavored food with, of course, like things like chili peppers. And even in Italy, I've been able to find chili peppers like Calabrian, Calabrian chilies, etc. So my uh, I, I definitely have my uh, my my version of, you know, um, the Italian ingredients. It's interesting when you talk about the authenticity of the Italian coast, because when I first posted a menu from this restaurant on social media, social media being what it is, everybody has an opinion. Somebody said, real Italians don't eat that stuff, <laughs> right? And that made me wonder what they meant by real Italians. But the reason I'm bringing it up is I think a lot of people, when they think Las Vegas, Italian, they're going to say red sauce joint. They're going to think Frank Sinatra, veal scallopini, chicken parm. 
How do you get over that? And how do you explain to people that Italy is a much more varied nation than some of us may believe? Well, I mean, look, I think there's there's lots of room for uh, all kinds of regions of Italy. Um, Italy is a very, very varied and 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 very sophisticated uh, uh, country when it comes to cuisine, and it has lots of lots of different influences depending on where you are in the world, uh, the, in the world of Italy, so to speak. You know, so like you know, when you go, when when you're on the Amalfi Coast, and you know, it's, it has a lot of of the Southern Italian influence. It's very, very gutsy, but it's definitely fish-driven. Dri- fish There's definitely tomatoes involved, but they might even be like fresh tomatoes, et cetera, or yellow tomatoes, you know, that are, are being grown on the farms there, it's, you know, and things like that. So, like, I, I don't think there's, like, one or the other kind of Italian food. I think there's, I think there's many, many. I think there's, I think there's several dif- different approaches to, to Italian food, and this is one that's just incredibly focused on fish and pasta. Chef, again, congratulations. Thanks so much for having me in, man. It's great to be here. I'm so happy for you. Al, um, you're always welcome. Um, You're one of my favorite people to feed in Las Vegas uh, any day of the week. I love keeping that little part on at the end there. You know, Jason was sitting right across the table from me. Not a word about Jason, so that made me happy. Just gave me an icy glare and was like, yes. So, Jason, speaking of the varied um, types of Italian cuisine, introduce our guest that we have here at Piero's with us, because I want to talk about how varied Italian cuisine can be. We have two chefs from two different types of styles of Italian restaurants. First, the chef, the partner, the owner, the face of La Strega, Chef Gina Marinelli. And as you could tell right there, I almost reverted back to my East Coast upbringing by calling you Gina. (laughs) (laughs) Little Tony Dan's in there. Who's the boss, really? And, of course, speaking of East Coast, Red Sauce, uh, the man formerly of Hakkasan, who made the move over to Piero's. Uh, good man, a good friend. It's Chef Chris Conlin here at Piero's, the head chef. Thanks for having me. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's it. So, nothing about his him being one of your favorite people to cook for, though. <laughs> he, I love cooking for Jason, especially parking lot handoffs. Yeah, we might have done some things that are illicit, but have involved uh, eggplant parmesans instead of drugs. But parking that's lot hand what? <laughs> I know, I caught that too. Yeah, I'm like, what? In this neighborhood, anything In goes. this parking lot. So, um, so you know, I, I want to ask the chefs. Italian cuisine, I mean, does it suffer from stereotypes? Does it suffer from people, especially in Vegas, right? In a, in a restaurant like we're in right now, where everybody's just thinking of the mafia and Sinatra and all that kind of stuff. I mean, do do people have too narrow a scope of what it means to be Italian, to cook a, a, an Italian chef? I think so. I think, you know, I think Italian cuisine has grown so much in the last decade as people have become more educated and more aware of what it can be. And as products became available and, and are more available and the chefs have explored and, and gone off in different directions and start cooking different styles and different Italian from different Italian regions where originally I think Italian cuisine was thought of you know what we originally serve here at Piero's you know that red sauce and spaghetti and meatballs and chicken parm okay and I want to talk to you a bit about how you've updated that and but yet still stayed true to the roots but Gina explain the type of Italian that you do at La Strega which means the witch which mm-hmm. I just love <laughs> um, out in Summerlin so our cuisine is we call it coastal inspired so anytime I'd spent in Italy, I brought those flavors, those memories, those dishes back, but I do a little twist on them, almost what Bobby had said. You know, if I wanted to do a dish that I had in Amalfi, it wouldn't resonate here without a little twist on it. And of course, when we opened, 
people had a hard time with it. They were looking for the chicken parm. They were looking for the red sauce and everything. And you have to kind of stay true to who you are and what your vision is and kind of make sure I'm at all the tables talking about it. And it's not about being, you know, trying to educate guests. They just want to come in and have great food. But I was like, you know, Italy's 90% an island. We forget that. And just celebrating the coast and the south. And people have really started to come around a little bit more. I think they're expecting more from Italian food. I feel that that coastal cuisine, whether you want to say the Amalfi Coast or just coastal cuisine from Italy, really had um, started to have a moment maybe three or four years ago. And, and a lot of places in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. I should say, in Las Vegas had a moment. Um, we remember Michael LaPlaca opened up a place over in um, the Mirage, Mirage. right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were a few people doing that. And then you came out, really hit it out of the park with that style of food in in the burbs mm-hmm. do you think it's easier to serve that style of coastal cuisine either in the suburbs or on the strip or does it not matter i hope it doesn't matter but for me i think in the burbs it's easier because you can have that intimate relationship with your guests you know where you're bringing in stuff that i'm only bringing in five of that day or i'm getting special fish flown in and you can connect with your guests and why we're doing it like this instead of just you know the on the strip just people are coming through you know, by the hundreds, and I'm not getting that. So I'm able to connect with them and tell that story, I think, a little bit better. When you say that you have to put your own twist on it Mm -hmm. to make it resonate here, Mm -hmm. can you give an example of what that might look like? I mean, for me, I think, okay, everybody here is pesto, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I think using different vegetables, a different process for that. So it's just a little bit more interesting you know, in that sense, and keeping it fresh and different. And especially as a chef, you know, I don't want to just keep making basil pesto 365 days out of the year. But bringing in stuff that, vegetables I can get from California that you may not get in Italy, and doing those type of pestos, using different types of herbs, and, you know, using cooking from, you know, most of the time, Italy, you get so many influences from Austria and Croatia and France that you can put that into your food. You know, and then Italy's so regional, they just focus on that region. Yeah, the last time I was at La Strega, you kind of blew me away with this uh, pasta with, uh, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but it was the crab voudouvant. Voudouvant, yeah. Yeah. I was like, where is this coming from? Because it's light, it's delicate, and I mean, it's, you know, kind of reminiscent of a a curry, but like a Mm -hmm. French super light broth and... uh, that was definitely something outside of the box of what I know Italian to be. And not, you know, and we, I think at this table, we all know different types of Italian, but that's really taking it to the edge somewhere else, I think. Absolutely. And it's celebrating the spice trade in Venice and recognizing Italy's history. And, you know, every t- when I spent time in Sicily, I had so much food from Egypt. And we forget that because we were just shown this small little circle of Italian food, the red sauce and the Parmesan and everything, which I absolutely love. But I just wanted to have a restaurant that celebrated the kind of the unknown parts of Italy. When it comes to that red sauce kind of stuff. Now, we are in Piero's. This place is, is known for that style. It's known for that era, you know, that, that classic from the Rat Pack through the 70s, you know, era of Las Vegas when that red sauce kind of ruled. Chris, when you came over here, was there a temptation to uh, to throw that out the window or was there tem- or was there pressure to stick to it and not be able to experiment at all? How did you balance your your creativity as a chef with what this place is known for? There there was. I definitely at first, you know, came in with the thoughts that like, okay, I'm going to reinvent this and kind of flip it upside down on its head and we're going to start over. Um, and quickly realized that we couldn't you know we have the clientele some we have people that have been dining here for 30 years since they were you know five years old coming in for dinner and now they're 45 and, and still coming for dinner um 
So quickly shift the focus to how could we improve those classic red sauce dishes and really kind of looking at um, the ingredients and the the techniques and, and just kind of different ways of preparing them and kind of like embracing that red sauce part of it. And then, you know, also part of it too was as we did the first menu change and kind of approached taking some of the, the classic original dishes away, there was a big pushback because people were coming to Piero's on Thursday night for swordfish and mustard sauce. And, you know, it was something that they had been eating for 20 years and they came every Thursday night for it. Um, so we kind of looked at how can we improve that, you know, the, the quality of the seafood or, or the preparation or the cooking technique and still offer that same dish but improve it. And, you know, it was, um, it was a big challenge to fight through that in the beginning. But now I feel we're in a really, really good spot where we're, we're honoring and respecting those red sauce dishes, but doing them in an elevated way. Could you give an example of a dish that you've elevated and how you've elevated it? Yeah, I mean, I think the pasta dishes across the board, just from the the way that the pastas were being cooked, the pastas that were being used, and just sourcing, you know, high-quality artisanal ingredients and, and, and treating them with respect and, and cooking techniques and all of that stuff. Chef, uh, Chris, you came from the Hakkasan group before this, so you were in a totally different world of kind of cooking at the edge too what was that adjustment like to come to an old school place and really even though you're modernizing it you're still moving from one type of very very current cuisine into something that's so rooted in tradition it it actually was a a big welcome to change you know kind of going from that kind of giant global corporate world to come into a family-owned mom and pop where you know like gina said you get to interact with the guests and you get the feedback and you know connecting with with ownership and and the guests on a daily basis and getting the feedback on what they enjoy and what they expect um and it was a a great change for me kind of leaving that kind of corporate role and getting back in the kitchen and working with food again and really embracing why i I didn't you know get into this to do paperwork but got into it to cook you know and and what better thing to do it with than italian food that is just so versatile and, and the options and the to be creative are there and Chef Gina, you've also, for those who don't know, you've worked on the strip mm-hmm. and you have done the, um, I don't know if you want to say corporate, but the celebrity chef world, right? You came out of DOCG with mm-hmm. um, Scott Conant, mm-hmm. who everybody knows. I guess you couldn't make red onions while you were there. I don't no. know what the deal is with that. <laughs> but um, w- w- could you talk a bit about how the, um, the, the environment of off-strip dining, why that drew you away from that kind of corporate, cosmopolitan, celebrity chef world into just kind of cooking for your neighbors out in, in Summerlin? You know, I think the one word I always use, it's intimate, you know, and if you see something or you're inspired by something or you read or you taste something, you can go in that day, make it and express it and share it with friends and your neighbors. And that kind of got lost on the strip. I was grateful for those many years I was on the strip because I have this opportunity now because I was there. But yeah, I loved the intimacy. I love people coming in and telling me it's their dog's birthday and I've been to their house and that really, really drove my move to go off strip. And Chef Gina, you, uh, when you were working for Scott Conan, you always talk about how the Pomodoro that you do now is so heavily influenced <laughs> by him. Mm-hmm. But uh, about a year after you so opened... a lot of butter in that? that just be? a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> a year after you opened in, in Summerlin, he opened in Summerlin. Yep. And you thanked him by burying him and putting him out <laughs> of business. 
So are you going to do the same to Bobby Flay now that he's doing an Amalfi-style restaurant? I, and did, a- <laughs> I did not do that. She may want a guest spot on Food Network sometime. <laughs> are you um, going to beat Bobby Flay? Beat Bobby yeah. Flay at Amalfi. Since you, you beat Scott Conan in, in Summerlin. So. Um, you know, I mean, I just think having someone like Bobby Flay doing coastal Italian food, it just brings more recognition to the other restaurants that are doing it. So I think it's great to have them here and I'm excited. Yeah, what a great answer. To, uh, <laughs> you guy was trying to get you to walk into a trap. Jason but, always wants to know why he's not invited to this. <laughs> and I think we just answered that question permanently right now. This is why Jason doesn't get invited. The, the two, I noticed you guys, and uh, you know, you both mentioned ingredients and the quality of ingredients. And one thing I love about Italian food is, you know, it's simplicity, right? That's what we're looking for. High quality ingredients, keeping it to just, you know, a few things on the plate and not overdoing it. And before we got on, I was telling you, I've noticed this trend about people just adding stuff and just not letting the ingredients speak for themselves. Have you guys seen this lately or what do you feel about that? I I see it coming back, right? Like everybody's got to add that one extra ingredient and push it over the top. You know, and I, I personally, I don't understand it to me. It's, you know, source the highest quality ingredients, cook it properly, treat it with respect and let that speak for itself you know and and that's you know so i I don't i don't understand it when we talk about the red sauce style of italian cuisine right and um and and then people talk about authenticity of ingredients right and it it strikes me and maybe i'm wrong i'm not a food historian but it strikes me that most of what we know is east coast red red sauce stuff that was the ingredients that was easy that were easily available to immigrants at the turn of the century right that that's where those were developed so those recipes of the the chicken parm or whatever the veal scallopini those dishes were the things that were easy to replicate with store-bought ingredients with supermarket bought ingredients a hundred years ago and that's the reason they became so popular right and now we have chefs like yourself chris especially who are trying to kind of reinterpret them with a higher level of ingredients i think we also yeah. see that from james trees as well right. over at um at Alcolito. posto i always get the name wrong <laughs> uh, but it i'm curious if that's a challenge when these dishes were developed using stuff that grandma could get in the corner store and now you, you're trying to elevate those recipes well i think also too when you know grandma was making those dishes and trying to replicate what she grew up with in italy or what her grandmother cooked in italy she was using ingredients that she was able to access here in the in America in the states and now fortunately you know the world shrunk so much that we're able to access those products from Italy and kind of bring more Italian influence and and authenticity to it so it makes it easier to improve those where you know you could still get your ragu tomato sauce and make a chicken parm but now having access to you know high quality tomatoes and and olive oils and and products to make those Italian American dishes but just having the whole globe to source the best possible product really makes it easier. My, my love of food is that it brings back memories and it, it flashes us back to dinner with grandmother or first dates or whatever. Um, but I don't know that there's a, a type of restaurant cuisine that's as frequently associated with grandma's recipes that, as it, than Italian is, right? That uh, Widely available. So I, th- I think you almost have a problem in that you could create a better version but if it doesn't remind them of their grandmother, it's not better, right? And, and, and that's really what we're trying to do here is, you know, it's like we're still making the chicken parm or the veal parm, but we're constantly evaluating, you know, is there a better chicken breast? Is there, you know, or is, is a chicken thigh better for this? Or, you know, what farm is this going to come? And, and, you know, veal's a big one. Um, 
found a great veal product. And the amount of veal that we go through here at Piero's is just insane. I go through about 20 racks of veal a week, so about 120 veal chops. It's Our purveyor's just blown away. And since the pandemic, I've had a lot of trouble or inconsistency in sourcing the product that we had originally specced pre-pandemic. And I've noticed if I switch from if I have to substitute in a different product, we get not complaints, but feedback of like, oh, it's okay. You know, <laughs> but if I can get source that product that we had spec'd, then people are just like, this is amazing. You know, what did you do to it? And we really haven't done anything. We just have a great product and, you know, we season it and we cook it in great olive oil and put great tomatoes and great cheese on it. And that's, that's it. What do you see? Cause we're talking about moving this cuisine forward here. What do you guys see for your restaurants in the next few years? Where is it going? You know, I think for myself, I think it's still just pushing the envelope food-wise and just exploring more of Italy, um, exposing people to as many different pasta shapes and seafood that we can find. And just, you know, obviously summertime, everyone's going to expect to see the tomato and the corn and what else we can provide during these seasons that's unique and exciting. You know, and always keep our staples the same and keep the ingredients up high. But, yeah, I just think it's going to be pushing the envelope with not that many ingredients on the plate, though. Also, though, I should point out that especially during the pandemic, you came out with the the sandwich Mm -hmm. right? The Piedini. Piedini. Mm -hmm. And um, actually, I was just talking to to Mimo Ferraro about what's going to be different at the new Pizza pizza Forte over at the Virgin. And he's like, yeah, we're going to bring in the Piedini, right? It's like, Gina had a bit of success with that out (laughs) in summer. So, um, you know, everybody knows panini, but you're doing a different kind of Italian sandwiches. Uh And it seems like you may have started a trend here in Vegas. So tell us a bit about that. And also, how quickly till you bury that guy? Oh, shut up. (laughs) Well, you know, it was great. I mean, during pandemic, you have to think what else I can do in these four walls of my restaurant to not just generate revenue, but just to stay current. So we did the Piadina, basically a flatbread sandwich. We use our pizza dough. We just had a little bit of lard to it. Use all their ingredients. And we just did like a little sandwich shop off the side. It was great. And now it's become such a great vessel for me to use. Like we're doing a fish market this weekend. It's fantastic. Anytime we do catering and stuff like that. So it's just another thing in your back pocket that keeps you you know, motivated and excited and expressing yourself in different ways. I love talking to chefs because they throw out things as if they're just such common knowledge, right? That I have no clue. Like, I mean, we just use the pizza dough, but we add a little bit of lard to it as if, oh yeah, well, of course, well, just throw some lard in the pizza dough and now you got sandwiches. You know, <laughs> Chef Gina's talking about the different pasta shapes. And the last time I was there, I had a regatti arrabbiata. And man, what a cool little pasta that is both like familiar but not especially known that really picks up the sauce and the flavors i really oh, yeah. like that um noodle if you want to kind of describe it to people basically we do a squid ink rigatoni that we extrude but we just cut it really quick so it's small and it represents almost the tubes of the calamari so super cool dish i love that dish. yeah cool. it's a good one and and chris you have different parameters to play with with moving this restaurant forward than Gina does. What what do you see going forward for Piero's? Well, I think, you know, Piero's, obviously, we're going to maintain the the classic, you know, Las Vegas red sauce classic dishes. and, and But also, I'm really excited about and enjoying introducing the clientele, both the old clientele and the new clientele, to new style Italian dishes. And I think, you know, doing that, we're super fortunate where... Um, we kind of we have complete freedom in the kitchen of what we offer as special editions, you know, and and we were able to reduce the menu quite a bit when we reopened in October, 
And I see us keeping that smaller menu of kind of the Piero's classics and then increasing the amount of, you know, weekly or, or biweekly specials that we offer of kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, new Italian, which is kind of really, I guess, old Italian in some ways, but um, new Italian to the clientele of Piero's. And, and that's what we've been doing. And it's been a huge success. You know, people are really loving coming in. And, you know, when we started offering oysters back in October, everybody's like, you're nuts. We, we've never been able to sell oysters in 37 years. And now I'm going through about 400 oysters a week in four days. Nice. When we talk about the aspects that make Piero's great, um, it is one of the many, the food, of course, fantastic. Um, but that, that, that history that it has and the fact that, you know, a lot of mobsters have eaten in these booths and, you know, and a lot of movies have been filmed here, all that kind of stuff, but also the live entertainment, right? right. And the fact, I mean, you had Pia Zadora here for a while and uh, I don't know if she's still here. I want to talk about that, but that idea of the old Vegas Italian restaurant with live entertainment and, you know, there's some other places like Bootlegger Bistro, I think is great for that. Uh, Casa di Amore always had some live entertainment. And a lot of these are places that get dismissed by some of the new jack, you know, foodies that come to Las Vegas. And they say, like, oh, why would you go there? What? I mean, Piero's is awesome because we have Chris in the kitchen. But, you know, the, I think there's something I guess what I'm getting at is there's something really magical, too, about that combination of a great crooner or a great Las Vegas entertainer in a showroom where you're eating old red sauce Italian food. And you talk a bit about your entertainment program. Yeah, I, th I think, you know, a meal at Piero's is just a night of entertainment in itself, you know, from the, the servers. I mean, the their approach and their act and their uniforms. Um, and then and then after dinner to be able to go over to Monkey Bar and have Piazzadora or, you know, last week was our first week back with live entertainment Friday and Saturday. And, you know, we had Charlie Hopper and, and it came in and, and you know, it really, people are walking out and they have all intentions of leaving and going to the strip. But then all of a sudden now there's this kind of like throwback, you know, smoky lounge kind of, you know, entertainment, big martinis kind of going on. It's like, well, let's stop in there and see. And it, it's, it draws people in, you know? Yeah. And as you know, this is common knowledge. I was doing comedy here before the yes. pandemic. Chris and I were working on something, and it was great. We sold out every show. Chris was putting out special menus live from the Monkey Bar. But I wanted to bring in that classical aspect because there's, you know, comedy, just like anything else, you have certain expectations. But we had Ray, who was like this very super old school Vegas piano player playing before we ever got on stage and he set such a cool vibe for the room and the show and I think people knew between your menu and Ray we were offering something different and then of course we let them all down with the show of comedy yeah. but, <laughs> no but it was great and um, and I, I do agree with you that you come here for the food but the atmosphere adds so much to it yeah. as well and when, so when we talk about the types of Italian that are here in Las Vegas we've got the, we've got the red sauce places we have the places that are all about the vibe, which are also red sauce places very frequently. I mentioned a few of those. Um, you know, we, James Trees is doing California Italian downtown, if you want to call it California Italian. I don't know what else to call it um, at Esther's Kitchen. The one thing that I, and of course, Gina and now Bobby Flay, <laughs> until she buries him, apparently. But, um, <laughs> no, Bobby, I'm just kidding. Um, anyway, Gina and a lot of people doing this coastal Italian, mm -hmm. right? What I think about, though, is um, elevated Italian, really. And I'm not talking about just pristine ingredients, but really fancy pants Italian, right? Mm -hmm. For lack of a better word. Because when you think about French cuisine, right, you go into a French bistro and you're going to see familiar dishes on the menu that you see at every French bistro. Then you go into a Robichon or a Guy Savoie and you're going to see things that you never saw anywhere except in Robichon and Guy Savoie. 
We have not had, through my 20 years in Las Vegas, we haven't had a lot of the real fancy pants Italian places I like to call uh -huh. them. We had Valentino uh -huh. when I first moved to Las Vegas, and you know, you could get some lamb's brains and things in there. Um, Mario Batali did some interesting uh -huh. things for a little while. Um, Michael LaPlaca over at the Mirage for a bit. And then we had Mark Vetri at the top of the Palms, which was, you know, Italian unlike anything else you're ever going to have in your life. And it was a, a totally new journey. Nothing on that menu looked familiar. Very, if not creative, because, I mean, it, it, of course creative, but not brand new. A lot of it drew on tradition, but it was not like every other Italian restaurant. I think we're missing that right now. That really super high-end Italian where you're going to see dishes that you don't see anywhere else in town. Am I missing somebody? Is there somebody doing that in town that I don't know about? I don't know if you're missing it. I mean, we, we've tried to push the book and the envelope a lot at La Strega, but when I think of elevated Italian, it doesn't resonate with me. I think of using ingredients and having unique dishes, but the food is so peasant-like that to me, it, and it's always going to be minimalistic. You know, what I loved about Mario Batali, I remember he had Madagascar prawns with sautéed radicchio and a little bit of lemon, one of my favorite dishes, but what made that elevated, I don't know, but what it was interesting. So I think that I'm starting to see more interesting Italian places coming through. Okay. Who do you think? I, I, I agree 100%. I think that is Italian food, right? It's 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 peasant food. It's it's not it's not meant to be refined. And you know, I, I one thing that always sticks out, and one of the reasons I love Italian food, I had the opportunity to do a dinner with Mario Batali very very early on in my career, and I was making raviolis, and I was you know, kind of French trained and I have my cutters out and we're making all these raviolis like perfectly round. He comes over, he goes, no, no, this is Italian food. Mm. It's like this. And he took a knife and he goes, this, that's a ravioli, you know? <laughs> and after like, that's when the light bulb went off. Like this is it. It's about flavor and, and the food. It's not yeah. about, you know, tweezers and putting this. But here. I mean, I, I mean, I can't be the only one who misses Vetri at the top. Oh my of, gosh. Without a doubt. Palms, Absolutely. Right? Yeah. yeah. Without but, a doubt. Vetri was great, but it's funny when you brought that up, Al, because like I loved Vetri, but I was thinking what I'd like more of is uh, Italian brunches and breakfasts, which I know you order, uh, you offer sometimes. And we mentioned James and has that been something that you've ever, I mean, you guys are more of a late night place, but uh, that's something we definitely have a hole in the market here for. Yeah, I don't. I don't think Piero's really attracts that kind of brunch lunch clientele, um, so we haven't really ever explored it. Okay, well, I want to thank you guys so much for having your time here. Is there any other topics we need to discuss about Italian? Any any off the hole in the wall Italian places you want to recommend that nobody's discovered yet? Okay. No, <laughs> I feel like everybody knows. All of it. No. We've talked about all of it. Well, that's cool. Like, remember, Piero's is here right across from the brand new convention center. Also, right across from the old convention center. You're pretty much across from all of the convention yeah. center buildings. Easy to spot, especially if you're in town for a convention. And if you're in town and you're a fan of Italian food or just really homegrown, great Las Vegas cuisine, you need to head out to Summerlin and you need to check out La Strega. Gina Marinelli's restaurant is phenomenal out there. Thank you both for being here. We will be back to wrap this up shortly. This is Food and Loathing. I'm Jonathan Jossel. Who are you? <laughs> I said I'm the mayor. Actually, I'm the CEO of the Plaza Hotel and Casino. We're located on the corner of Main Street. That's also the name of our podcast. The only podcast produced by a Vegas hotel. That introduction right there is bigger than any other introduction. If you're missing Vegas, in between visits, or just Vegas curious, I absolutely love, love, love to play slots. Join the fun every week right here on our podcast on the corner of Main Street. 
Welcome back to Food and Loathing. Uh, Al, we just had a great conversation with Chef Gina and Chef Chris, and you have a, some more information on some events from Chef Gina coming up. Yeah, I mean, first we should note that um, Chef Gina mentioned her fish market, and uh, that's not happening this weekend coming up. I just want to let people know we recorded that a little in advance, so we should let them know that things do change. But, you know, it's interesting. Chef Gina is collaborating with Mark Vetri who, and Joel, Joel Myers, his chef over at um, the Red Rock Resort, and they're doing the one-year anniversary dinner for Asteria Fiorella at Red Rock. That is coming up on July 12th, so coming up next week. And I would love to tell you you could go buy a ticket for that one, but it's already sold out. Gina just texted me and told me about that. So I don't know, maybe if you go and knock on the door, or just, you know, kind of look very hungry, maybe they'll let you in. But it looks delicious, man. I'm checking out this this menu. I mean, crudo, hamachi tartare, spaghetti alla chitara with pork shank ragu, monkfish tortellini with lobster broth, wood-roasted lamb chop, Polenta Budino to end the whole thing. It's $140 a person, uh, inclusive of tax and gratuity. Like I said, it is sold out on Eventbrite, but you know, I'm one of those people that just sometimes shows up and sees if I can get an extra seat. You might seat. be that guy because you're a special boy, Al. But um, we would want to follow Chef Gina anywhere and obviously Mark Ventry. So for them to team up, uh, this is going to be a great event. And kudos to the diners for buying those tickets up, snatching them up early, Al. Another place, though, that you mentioned that you went to was Delilah. You got a first sneak peek. Yeah, Delilah. I almost missed that one. This is a testament to what a moron I am. Um, you know, I've been telling you all week, Thursday night, I'm going to Delilah. Thursday night, and I, you know, exciting. I was bragging about it because people have just been talking about what an over-the-top experience this was going to be. And then I'm sitting at home on Tuesday night, and I get a message from our friend Rob over at Thrillist, and he's like, um, we're supposed to be seated at the Al Mancini table, and you're not here. And I was like, oh. Damn, that's tonight. So, um, you know, Sue and I, my wife, Sue, we were about to, we had, I had just thrown some hot dogs on the grill. The tater tots were in the air fryer. And I threw on a blazer, jumped in the car, and left her to, um, to eat the weenies on her own. And I went over to Delilah. Wow. All I, all I can tell anybody who thinks, you know, Vegas sometimes overhypes things or overpromises. You cannot overhype Delilah. Delilah is probably the most decadent, over-the-top art deco experience that I have ever seen. I mean, you know, when you think about the, the most ridiculous, opulent, Jay Gatsby-style wow experiences you can imagine. You know, I mean, look, I've been to Radio City Music Hall. Um, you know, my wife actually graduated from college there. I've been to the Smith Center, the both beautiful Art Deco buildings. Nothing compares to Delilah. And it is sort of this, um, this dinner, I don't want to say dinner theater. There's, there's a band that performs, and it's classic jazz, although they were doing some Warren G and some Radiohead that night, but in a classic jazz style. Um, it's not the same as, say, Mayfair Supper Club, where you feel like it's a big, giant production. Um, this is more of just going to watch the musicians perform at the height of decadence. And then the food is Josh Smith, who we all know and love from Bardot Brasserie. And um, this is him, I think, a little flashier than we remember him from Bardot. So it's a lot of classic dishes that are just done in an amazing, flashy way. I think I had a fish and chips. I think it was a $70 fish and chips, um, but totally off, off the hook, man. Just ridiculous. Is this a deal where it's a package where you 
get it show or is it still a traditional menu and you pick your mains and your sides and all that it's a traditional a la carte menu oh. you go in you pick your mains you pick your sides some of these dishes are absolutely ridiculous i mean have, have either of you guys ever heard of a carrot souffle as a side dish for your your entree because that that was one of the things they had there um just ridiculously over the top man and this is in the win or the encore right now this is in win that's the other reason i almost got there late because jason and i both thought that this was going to be replacing Elia in the old Andreas spot, but I was completely wrong on that, so I showed up at the wrong door as well, like an idiot. Um, and this is actually in the old Alex spot over in Winds. So okay. Alex Strada's old restaurant, and it's just gorgeous. It's tucked way out of the way. From the outside, it looks like an old, um, you know, 1920s maybe movie theater. It kind of reminds me if you're in Disneyland and you go to Cafe Circle, it sort of has that feel from the outside. Um, and then you go inside, and it's just, yeah, it's just ridiculousness, man. I think. If you want to just really feel like, you know, a cartoon jillionaire and sit at the bar here and sip a martini and, you know, the women with the feathers in their headdresses dancing and it's it's just gorgeous, man. Yeah, I had a lot of friends who went and heard all good. Uh, hopefully, Rich, will find our way there one yeah. day, huh? What are, we, what are we looking at uh, per person? Two, two fifty more? Um, I would, like I said, entrees, the entree I, I ordered was about $70. So you figure another, you know, three, 30 or 40 maybe for an app. I mean, I, I don't have the prices in front of me, but I would say you probably figure once you've done a cocktail, some dessert, 200, 200 a person would okay. be pretty easy to spend in there. On the flip side, during the pandemic, Josh Smith, uh, such a good chef, did a um, pastrami pop-up that uh, where he was just making his own pastrami and making homemade pastrami sandwiches for lunch. And they were delicious. This dude could do anything of this super high end carrot souffles or just delicious pastrami sandwiches. Yes. I didn't see any pastrami on the menu here. <laughs> well, if we get there, maybe we will. Uh, other stuff. Um, what else do we have going on? I wanted to talk a bit about what's in the news these days and, um, yeah, let's do that first. Then we'll get to questions from our listeners. Sure. I uh, drove by a place that I'm very excited has a second location now. That's Vesta Coffee, one of my favorite coffee shops uh, in the downtown Main Street area. They just opened their new shop up there close to Dave's Hot Chicken over there on uh, Fort Apache and Sahara. They're open 7 to 4 right now. Uh, Jared J., the owner, told me you can expect those cool downtown vibes that he set up over in the original shop. And the menu is awesome at Vesta. I love getting golden milk, which is a turmeric kind of spice blended milk. But one thing that's just totally out there wild, he does his own tonics every year. And this summer they're offering an espresso tonic with coconut yuzu tonic. It's just bonkers. Well, okay. Well, I'm not a, a coffee drinker. I usually get my caffeine from carbonated rock stars or other energy drinks, but I do love Vesta. It's a beautiful spot. Yeah, the food is good. Um, and also, like I said, you can get golden milk. You can get all these different teas. Go check out Vesta. Okay. Also, I will, and perhaps I'll go with you. Okay. That would be nice. Also in the news, I was checking out um, our friends and colleagues over at Eater Vegas this morning before I got here, and I saw that there was a story that, that um, Lamai is expanding into Henderson and that bank... Um, Bank Archuan, who owns Lamai, is also planning to repurpose his dessert spot, the patio. So before we came on the air, I texted over to Bank and um, I asked him what the details are. So 
with regards to the new Lamai, and by the way, for those of you who aren't familiar, Lamai is a fantastic Thai restaurant. Bank has a huge history in Las Vegas. Yeah, he had Chata Street, Chata Thai, some really great spots. And the dessert place is the patio, so give it to us. Yeah, so Lamai's great, and it's over there on Spring Mountain Road. So what he told me is, I'll tell you the exact location. It's next to Scrambled, the same shopping center as BurgerFi and Mothership on St. Rose. Yeah. It'll have a, a very spacious patio with bar seating in the patio. Same menu as Lamai with some extra dishes. It'll also act as the best wine bar in Henderson. So actually, he said Hendo because he is way cooler. Is that uh, what Hendo, you hipsters that's what I, call it? That's what I call it. But you know, that's just how we do it out there. Um, I'm excited. I live very close to there, and that is an up and coming complex on an up and coming street. And uh, we welcome Lamai out there. I love Thai licious and table Thai in the neighborhood. This is going to take Thai food in Hendo to a whole new level. And with regard to the patio, which is over on Decatur by Hacienda, I drive by it every day when I'm bringing my dog Ziggy back from daycare. Um, He says, for the patio wine garden, it will debut much sooner. I'm shooting for a local hangout spot, mostly affordable small wineries with some of my personal stash as as a secret list. Possibly some acoustic set later on. Um, so, and maybe he said maybe a few of the desserts will remain, but that's mostly going to be a wine bar. Acoustic set? Like he's going to have some musicians playing? That's what I take this to mean. Again, this oh is fre- fresh off the text message. And the patio, besides having great desserts, if you want to Instagram some beautiful desserts, the patio is like a must try spot. Yes. So um, hopefully some of those gorgeous desserts will remain on the menu as he converts it. I think the last thing we need to do today, Jason, that I can think of is I know we always want to get some feedback from our listeners. And, you know, right now we're still accepting emails at info at foodandloathing.vegas. So if you have any questions, please give them to us there. But I I threw this up on my personal Facebook page. I asked if there were any questions people had. And our friend Alyssa Kelly said, um, it would be fun if you guys each gave something you're watching, reading, listening to, and what food to pair with a quick a quick sign-off segment. So, Jason, watching, reading, uh, listening to... Is this an either-or? Or is this an either-or? Whatever you're feeling, man. Let's give it to Rich first. I was just looking up to figure out when the Boulder City Lutefisk Festival is. I guess there isn't one this year, or it's already <laughs> happened. Not that I want to have Lutefisk at all. Okay. But I've been watching a lot of Danish uh, series. Uh, Jason and I have shared back and forth that, and the ones done in Iceland, which is kind of... Not Iceland. Nordic yeah. Noir. We Nordic love Nordic Noir. Noir these. Yeah, exactly. So I need something white, you know, some some cod that's done is about as plain as possible. Well, maybe you should go to the Codfather, a great fish and chip spot right there on Green Valley and Sunset. Probably you- too tasty for this particular venue. Okay, but yeah. what show are you recommending? I uh, Borgen, uh, the political thriller. Well, not really a thriller, but it's political drama. And then the other one, which was about a woman who was kidnapped, and she's got all the nuclear secrets for her drones. And But it's almost the same cast as Borgen. And I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of it right now. But I come from Scandinavian, Swedes and Norwegians, and... You know, all through my heritage, there is no such thing as too bland. Okay. I've been fighting that for for decades. And Rich, thank you for recommending a show without remembering its name. That's helpful. Well, you know, (laughs) show prep. (laughs) Uh, So, Jason, what about you, man? Uh, I'll tell you what I'm watching, and it is so funny. It's I Think You Should Leave. It's on Netflix. It's Tim Robinson, who is a bit player on Saturday Night Live. And I guarantee you half the people who might check it out will turn it off immediately because it's playing with the form of sketch comedy. And it what it does is like 
it kind of deflates the joke and then takes it in another way and sometimes takes it way too long without necessarily making it funny, which is what is funny to me. Um, and I would just say, you know, if you want to get something easy to eat over there, he loves hot dogs on that show. So you should eat a hot dog. Maybe stop at the Steamy Weenie over there on $2 Wednesdays. Grab yourself some dogs and watch I Think You Should Leave. Rich, you watch that show, right? I, I want to like that. I remember Tim Robinson from his one season in the cast at Saturday Night Live. I saw Tim Robinson 10 years ago at Second City Live. And, and I remembered him, and then he showed up on that. And I wanted to like this show, and I lasted 10 minutes. See, this is what I mean. But, you know, we agree on these Nordic noirs, but comedy-wise, we're all the, all over the spectrum. <laughs> it is a great show. Second season, each episode's 15 minutes. You'll watch it. You'll finish it. you watch it again. Eat a few hot dogs with it. Okay. And um, I was thinking when I saw this question that I was watching Sweet Tooth pretty recently. I recommend you that one. And um, sort of a very heartwarming kind of post viral apocalypse movie um, with, with a heart and tugs on your heartstrings. And since that kid is kind of half deer, half human, I was thinking maybe I'd eat some venison with that. There you go. And then as I was, um, as I was thinking of that last night, I was flipping through the channels and I saw a Dick Gregory documentary. Yeah, on Showtime. Was, yeah, on Showtime, which was fantastic. And as I was watching that in the beginning, I was thinking, well, this makes me want to go down to... Um, down to the historic west side and eat some legitimate soul food. You know, when I was watching the part about the civil yeah. rights struggle and I really wanted to go patronize some black owned businesses. I wrote a recent story about the history of soul food on the historic west side. And I was all psyched to tell you about that. Maybe Carol's, Chef Carol's Kitchen, which is awesome. And then it got to the part where he kind of went on a health nut and went on a fast and started only oh. drinking juice and doing Bahamian diets. And that kind of ruined my recommendation for that being the right food to eat there. But I'm going to stick with it anyway, man. I, I say watch Dick Gregory and during the civil rights portion of it, get some takeout from a legit soul food restaurant. And maybe you could put it all in a blender and juice your soul food. Uh, that would that would not be fair to the fine soul food. And I think that is about us for this week. I want to thank all That of, is about us for this that week? That is about... Yeah. And That's I, approximately us. That is us. <laughs> this is us? Is anyone watching that? I'm us not watching someone that. Someone like us. No. Take it again. And I think that is about it for this week in this episode of Food and Loathing. Thanks to all of our guests, Gina Marinelli from La Strega in Summerlin, Chef Chris Conlon from Piero's, and of course, a shout out to Bobby Flay for stopping by the table for a quick chat during the opening of Amalfi in Caesar's Palace. One last shout out to Featherblade, a new craft English butcher shop in Summerlin, the corner of uh, Charleston and Durango. So say hello to Martin Crane, the owner and head butcher, and tell him you heard about it right here on Food and Loathing. And don't forget our friends over there at Artisanal and yeah. at Jordan Way. And if uh, you like what you heard, guys, join us again next time. We drop new episodes every Friday next week. Next week we're doing buffets. Next week. All right. All right. We got buffets. Buffets it is next week. So please tune in. I know a lot of people love buffets. We'll be talking about off the strip buffets, on the strip buffets, who's doing buffets, all anything, all you can eat and all you can learn about buffets. Well, that sounds very Vegas to us. And guys, please tell a friend about Food and Loathing. If you love it, great. Give us a five star there on the Apple Podcast Reviews. It helps. You can subscribe or follow on any podcast platform. And like I said, five star review on Apple. And if you want to reach us directly by email, info at foodandloathing.vegas. On social media, search Facebook for Food and Loathing. On Twitter, we're just at Food Loathing. And on Instagram, find our lovely photos at Food and Loathing Pod. With Jason Harrison, producer Rich Johnson, I'm Al Mancini. Stay hungry. 